and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series. I'm your host and fellow dyslexic Shay Wissell. Dear Dyslexic is a community and resource space for everyone, but in particular for young people and adults who have dyslexia. How hard do you think it must be for someone with dyslexia to be able to teach? Well, our guest speaker today has been able to do that and many other things, including writing a book that supports students with dyslexia. She has been a teacher for over 20 years and specialised in dyslexia when she moved over to the UK. I'd like to give a really warm welcome to a huge mentor of mine and also a fellow dyslexic, Sandra Hardgraves. Welcome, Sandra. Thanks very much. So, Sandra, Dear Dyslexic is about raising awareness of the successes and challenges of having dyslexia. You have written a wonderful blog for us called The Revelation of a Dyslexic. Can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you were diagnosed um, with dyslexia? Well, I didn't um, know I was dyslexic until I went to live in the UK. And by that stage, I was 50. So I had um, lived in Australia for all those years and I had... Um, trained secondary English teachers. I'd been an English teacher and I'd also worked in technical and further education. And when I did my first training course in the UK and I was studying um, and reading the research about dyslexia, I knew that I had it. And it was like it was like a revelation. And that's what I've called the blog I've put onto your website. And that's how I feel. Because it was just wonderful to know um, what was wrong with me in terms of the fact that I had issues that I'd had to cope with all my life and most of which I had covered up. Uh, the most important one was my very poor spelling, mm. which has caused me grief all my life. Uh, but it didn't stop me from, from getting on. Um, and teachers made a big deal about it and people said I was lazy. Um, people never said I was stupid or sick, thank goodness. I know they do use those epithets. But fortunately for me, I, I got into a selective high school where the girls all laughed at my spelling and I was um, constantly um, having five marks taken off every one of my papers because that's what they did in that school. Up to five marks for for your spelling, half a mark off for every mistake and my mm. papers came back covered in red ink and spelling mistakes. That's terrible, isn't so, it? How disheartening. Yeah, it was, it was pretty grim and, you know, it, it makes you... Um, tough because you've got to, you know, you've got to have a sort of a kernel around you like a, a tortoise or a turtle mm. and you have to keep, you know, going forward. And I, I learned to spell, but I didn't realise why I had the problem until I was in the UK and I was 50 years old. So when you were diagnosed, you were happy to know what, what was the cause of all your issues. Were there other feelings as well? I know when I was diagnosed, I was happy to find out what was wrong, but I also was really frustrated that I'd been let down for, through so many school systems and education systems. Well, I guess that I knew that dyslexia was actually way behind in Australia and I was just actually very fortunate. We went to the UK at the time and I, I was attracted to the area. And the reason I was, uh, I tried to get a job in... Um, in teacher education in secondary English, as I'd had in, in Australia. I've been working at Macquarie Uni. But when I went to the UK, they accepted all my qualifications, but they said I didn't have qualified teacher status. So I would have had to have gone back into schools and been re-inspected. And I, I just knew that was ridiculous. You know, I'd, I'd been training teachers and I, I just wasn't going to go there. 
So I applied for a job in the Inner London Probation Service in adult literacy because I'd worked in adult literacy in um, technical and further education when my children were small. And they were the people who sent me off to do the dyslexia training. Mm. And uh, the whole thing was just, I just felt I was meant to be there. I was meant to find out I was dyslexic and then I'd been meant to work with dyslexic students for the last 20 years. So I, I just actually thought it was all very positive. I, I didn't ever feel negative because um, I knew they didn't know uh, at the time that I was being educated what was wrong with me. Uh, but the thing is, I am so grateful to the educational psychologist who made sure that I got into the selective high school. And she actually had me moved into the top class in my first year. But, of course, with all the spelling um, errors and the taking of five marks off every paper, I soon went down from that that class. Um, but, you know, I survived. And the thing is, when we had our, our reunion of my school, 50 years of Newcastle Girls High School, um, I, you know, I could say, I, I said that I would edit the newsletter for what everyone had done in their last 50 years. And, and in that, I said I'd been in everyone's class. And I had been, and... I knew most of the girls in the school, in the four classes uh, that we had had at Newcastle Girls High School. And and so I, I don't regard my life as, as negative, but I just regard the fact that I, I have dyslexia um, in many ways as a positive. Um, it's a problem in that I'm poor at languages. I was poor at languages. And, of course, selective high schools are very big on languages. But I just don't try to learn languages anymore because they don't teach them the way I can learn them yeah. and uh, I you know I do things other things I want to do but I know I always have to live in an English speaking country yes I've tried to learn a couple of languages and it's never quite worked for me either <laughs> no no I mean well that's what we can't do you know we we can't do phonological processing yeah. and therefore it doesn't matter, you know, what's put into that area. It's always going to be a constant failure, which is why the teaching of phonics is not a good idea to people who are dyslexic. So when you were training as a teacher, did you find it difficult when you were well, studying? Uh, I had to pass a spelling test, uh, very like the basic schools tests that are now conducted in the UK and probably here too. And I was absolutely terrified that I'd fail. And I knew people who had failed. Other, you know, when I was doing practice teaching, I'd met people who'd failed that spelling test and they didn't ever go forward. They couldn't go up the graduate assistant scale. They mm. stayed on the bottom row of the scale for the rest of their teaching career until they passed the spelling test. So, you know, I was very alarmed about this, but I learnt spelling. I learnt all of the demons. I, I knew all of the word families. I had them all typed up, you know, ANTs and ENTs. And that's why, of course, I've put those spelling lists into the, the book which I have written, uh, Study Skills for Dyslexic Students, and those lists of spelling families are there. And I think that whatever works for you uh, to help you is what you should do, and tutors should find out what helps you rather than having a one-size-fits-all uh, program for students. Every student needs to be taught at their point of need. Mm, which is um, a real challenge in today's society when it is really one size fits all for everybody. Um, yes. I think Australia is slowly moving away from that, but we've still got a long way to go, that's for sure. So how did you keep going? Did you find that it was frustrating and you needed a lot of support or did you just keep at it on no, your no. own? 
There was no support. Um, I passed the spelling test. I think I got it all right. But, you know, I just spent such a long time uh, getting organised. And the thing is, too, that I, I missed the first two spelling tests at the teachers' college, uh, just um, the way things were. Um, I'd gone up to the beach to run over my spelling um, for the second one. And um, I, ha- I I pulled out from the curb when I realised what time it was and a taxi hit me oh, no. <laughs> in my sister's car. So I, I missed that um, appointment. And, of course, timekeeping is another problem with people who are dyslexic. You know, mm. you think you've got more time than you've got. Yes. And so I had to ring up and say I couldn't attend the spelling test. And then when I did it, I was with the people who'd failed, all the people who'd failed the other two tests, but I hadn't sat for it. But, I, you know, I, I managed. And, of course, I was doing an English... Um, I had an English degree, and I was training to be an English teacher. And I got distinctions in my practice teaching, so it was so important that I, I get through this test, which I did. Mm. But when I try to help people in the UK who have to sit for the basic skills tests, you know, I, I'm very aware of, of their problems, and they have to do it on the computer, and there's, they, they can't give them the extra time. Like They get the answer, but then it's flashed off the screen when um, they can do it. Yeah. So we have to ask for, for it to be in a hard copy for them with the extra time so they can see it and then answer when their processing speed allows them to do that and not fail. Because it doesn't mean they can't do it. It just means they need to have um, reasonable adjustments put in for them so that they can perform the task yeah. asked of them. So you're majored in English. Do you find that, um, did you find it difficult seeing you were dyslexic? So as an English teacher, have you found it areas challenging for you to then be able to teach? No, I I didn't because um, I've always been an avid reader and I learned to read by reading, uh, certainly not by phonic instruction. And so I have a a great reservoir of words in my long-term memory, which I, I know by sight. And... I, I use dictionaries to look up words to... Well, I, I used to. Now I use the internet. Mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, I I was very good at covering always. And so I'd never put up anything on the board that I, I couldn't spell. I didn't know how to spell. Mm-hmm. I can remember once, well into my... I've, I've been teaching for years. I've been working in the teacher education program at Macquarie. And I was training adult literacy officers when my children were small at TAFE. And I was going through the, the training process because these people were all professional people who mostly retired and wanted to do some voluntary work. And they took uh, illiterate adults and they were one-to-one with them because the, the students had obviously failed so many times they didn't want to come back into an educational institution, but they would work with a, a tutor. But these people were volunteers. Mm. And I know now, um, like all these years later, that a lot of those people would have been dyslexic. But, of course, it wasn't um, even spoken about in Australia at the time. So they felt like constant failures. Uh, Anyway, I was just talking about um, how people learn to speak. And I I said to the group, well, how how do babies learn to speak? And and someone said to me, they imitate. And because I was making notes on the board and I thought, has it got one or two M's? And I would not write it up. Um, so I wrote repetition on the board because I know that word very well <laughs> and when we had the coffee break I went out to look it up and it's got one in but it could have had two mm. and so I wouldn't write it on the board so I mean that's how I always covered myself that yeah. if I didn't know how to spell it I would I'd put something else up a synonym or 
I mean, sometimes I, I just sort of um, say to the kids, who can spell this? You know, in the classroom, yeah. you can do that mm. because you can make it a game. But you can't do that when you're, t- you're working with adults. You've really got to say straight out you can't do it or, or do something else. Another great thing about being dyslexic and knowing is you can tell people. Yes. You know, I'm <laughs> very happy to tell people now. Me too. I find it um, definitely hard in the workplace and I've had to pick my moments around disclosing that I'm dyslexic and I find once I've done it I feel so relieved because then I can if I have trouble I can say oh, I can't spell that can you help me out and I don't feel stupid but yeah. it's that initial disclosing that's always um, a bit anxiety provoking so do you always when you go into a workplace now and you're lecturing do you always say up front this is a challenge of mine or Oh, yes, I do now that I'm working in dyslexia and have since I've been working in dyslexia. But I didn't, of course, before I knew and when I was working in Australia, I was always covering yeah. uh, my spelling uh, problems. But no, it's a great liberation, really, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to say, well, um, this, this is my problem, was my problem, and I've overcome it, and I've managed to do all these other things in my life. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I think that's what's what's good about it, knowing and, and moving forward. So you transitioned from teaching in secondary school then through now you're a senior lecturer training dyslexic tutors and assessors to work in higher education. What does that mean? Because we don't really have them in Australia. Well, I mean, I've done that work at Macquarie Uni by training English teachers before I went to the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, when I went to the UK, I did the dyslexia course and I got a job um, in the Inland and Probation Service, and, and they paid for the course, and then I realised I was dyslexic, I was assessed. And then I became a dyslexia um, coordinator at Uxbridge College, which is like an FE college. And from there I went to Thames Valley University and then to London Metropolitan University. And I went there because of the fact that they were teaching the course to train tutors, and I thought, well, finally I've got myself back into the same um, level of job, and I, I really like training um, tutors and teachers, I, I, I find that a very satisfying job because you see people who are enthusiastic going out and doing that work and you can help them. And uh, so it, it was good. I, but I didn't feel any problem about moving into training because I've done it before and I, I enjoy it. Yeah. In fact, I prefer to work with adults. I really enjoy working with adults. So in the workplace, have there been any strategies that you've put in place to help you day-to-day? Well, I think you've got to be very organised. And I think uh, a lot of those strategies are in, in the, um, the book, Study Skills for Dyslexic Students. But the IT now is very helpful. And you can set up um, IT diaries on your phone and on your tablet and in your computer. And if you have reminders all the time for things, um, I keep... I also keep a hard copy diary and I find this really interesting because um, my husband writes everything into our um, our Apple, um, we've got a, an iCloud and therefore all of the appointments we can see in our phones that the other person's doing and he sees what I'm doing. But I still write it, a hard copy on a calendar which I have on the wall and I can see the months ahead of me and I can see the week ahead of me and that's how I remember it in my head. Yeah. So... I actually find just putting a finger on the day and seeing a dot, you know, on the phone, not very helpful at all, really. Uh, I think it's good to be be there, but I think everyone has to find their organisation for themselves and to stick to it. 
And I think keeping um, to-do lists is also really useful. They're also in the um, in the book. And I've got a very good friend who was a principal of a high school, and she used to keep to-do lists. She was not dyslexic at all, but so anything that works for you and that will make sure that you've done everything you intend to do for the the day or the week to keep your appointments, to make sure that you've done your preparation is important, whatever works. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't live without Google calendars now. (laughs) It helps me stay organised, that's for sure, so I don't miss anything. And the addresses in there are brilliant because then I don't get lost. So I get there early and I make sure I'm not lost or late with things. I was just going to say, I mean, a great advantage now that Google Maps, because I find when I go to an appointment, uh, you know, when I, I'm in London, for example, and I go to see somebody or I, I'm going to see a client, I, I put on that Google Map. And if I'm walking, it shows me if I'm going the right or the wrong way. Mm. And, of course, the other thing is using the phone, the phone to, um, to, to drive, too. That helps enormously. Where you, if you're going to some place you don't know, you can follow the directions. And it, I think all of these IT um, apps have just made everyone's life, and including dyslexic people, much easier. And, of course, we have three pieces of software that are given to people in, in the UK who are dyslexic, and one is a readback program, uh, which they, um, they can get on their computer, which highlights the words and reads to them at the same time, so they're seeing and hearing the words at the same time. One is a mind mapping program, which uh, is so helpful for essay planning and organisation in the workplace. And the other one is the the um, speech program where you can have dictation, which uh, then is typed up. And of course, anyone with an Apple um, computer or iPad or iPhone now has that available as well on their on their device. Yeah, I couldn't live without um, speech to text. Mm. Is that the right way around? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it, yes. I use it at work all the time. It's a great tool, yes. and now it's on Word, so you don't even have to buy it. Yes. A lot of those things are now um, are freely available, mm. which is wonderful. It means everyone can use them. That's right. It's And it's so easy to use on Word. I mean, there's a couple of little glitches, but overall it's a great tool, and so technology has been amazing. It, it has been, and I, I can remember when I was working at Macquarie University in the um, in the 90s and 80s, and I'd go to see students teach out all over Sydney. I used to write the instructions down, like word for word. I'd, I'd look at the map and get my husband to help me, and I had them on my lap, uh, written out in front of me. So you know, when I was going out to the western suburbs, you know, a long way out, mm. you know, I was tra- driving 20, 30, 40 miles to see someone teaching, and I'd say turn left, stop at the lights, turn right, and I followed that. You know, religiously, but now I can just look at it, you know, on the um, on the iPhone in front of me and follow it, yeah. and also hear the voice, which is also a big help. Yeah, hearing the voice for me is a huge help, um, so I don't get lost. The only time now is if I can't spell the word, but again, Google helps a lot with that now as well. So we're very lucky, really, to be living in these times we of are. technology. So you've mentioned. About your book, Study Skills for Students with Dyslexia, Helping for Specific Learning Differences, and we have it up on our website, and once we launch uh, your blog, we'll also put the spelling strategies up, which I thought were fantastic, and I wish I'd known about those when um, I was back in school. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how the book came about? Well, the book came about because um, I was training um, 
dyslexia tutors who were all so fantastic that I just felt they'd done such brilliant work that we should sort of collect it and collate it. Well, it's a fabulous resource and, um, again, it's on the website for people to link through to be able to purchase it and to have a look. Um, so thank you because I found it really useful um, having a look at that thank and just can. using some of those strategies even at work. So thanks for um, putting that together. But you, you have achieved a lot while you've been in the UK. Not only have you written the book, you've also um, established the Association of Dyslexic Specialists in Higher Education well, I was part of that. I was part of the um, the initial group, and there there were only about you know twenty people to start off with who were um, in the beginning, the inception of that organisation. And uh, the, the, one of the reasons I suggested it is because we were all just so isolated. You know, one person in each university trying to set up support for dyslexic students, and having that support network again was just wonderful. And now, I mean the the numbers are in that, well, they'd be into the thousands now, and they're all over the country, and they have regional groups. They have a, a, a national conference once a year. They have um, networking days. It's a really good organisation, and they have a JISC mail um, service, which is terrific because people can um, write in on the JISC mail and ask for advice, and other people respond. So how do you think it's um, helped support students? Well, I think it helps to support students enormously because when people uh, have a problem that they can't um, cope with, they put out a message on the, the gist mail. So they are getting the support themselves and then they're passing that on to the student. Uh, also, you often see um, a request there for a tutor or a, an assessor in an area uh, where you know, someone knows the student needs help and therefore it's across the country and people can then get in touch and and they can tutor or assess the student accordingly. So it's been immeasurable, really, in its assistance. It's a really fantastic organisation. Can you just talk a little bit about the difference between your tutors and assessors? Because over here, normally you'd need to be assessed by a neuropsychologist or an educational psychologist. Is that the same in the UK? Is that what your assessors go out and do? Or Well, we have two forms of assessment in the UK. We have that done by psychologists, and we have that done by dyslexia assessors and they um, are people who've got a, a basic um, a postgraduate diploma in dyslexia assessment so the course that I was running at London Met was a postgraduate certificate to become a tutor followed by a postgraduate diploma to become an assessor and it's a very um, well structured um, course because they learn all about tutoring and, and dyslexia and do all the background theory in the first year to get the the certificate, and then they do the assessment tools and do assessments um, themselves, which have to be assessed in the second year. And then if they wish, they can go on and do a, an MA uh, in an area of their interest, and then they write a dissertation. Right. So we've spoken a lot about how Australia is quite far behind, and um, there aren't any courses like that in Australia yet where you could become a dyslexic assessor, and England's really advanced... Um, compared to Australia. So what is it like for people in the UK, do you think? Because you've got your assessors, you've got tutors, um, people seem to well, have identified. The, the UK is a good place to be dyslexic. I think that's really true. Um, there's a lot of support there, in, especially in, um, in higher education. It goes through the schools, though. Um, and the other thing is that 
people have to do a course in their in their PGCE, which is like the dip ed here, uh, in dyslexia. They they know about dyslexia. They're taught about dyslexia when they're trained to be teachers. Right. Because um, I gave sessions to those people when I was working at London Met. They asked me to come in and do a session uh, for the PGCE, and I did. And I did. So they have that awareness, and uh, of course, it's not the mystery that. It still is, and it's not negated, you know, as I still find it is here, where people say, oh, there's no such thing as dyslexia. Um, they're not saying that mm. in the UK, fortunately. Uh, and it's addressed, and people feel they can say they've got it without feeling they're going to be discriminated against. But the thing is that the workplace is always the most difficult place, and some people who've had support at university are dubious about whether they should tell their employer. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that if they don't, they will not get the support. Mm. And, you know, we always advise that they will because there's um, a group called Access to Work which provides support for dyslexic people in the workplace and, and updates at other SPLDs. And Access to Work gives you one-to-one tutorial support and uh, IT support um, up to a certain number of hours to pro- to provide you with the help you need to do your job. And again, there are software programs that are given. But as you're saying, a lot of these things now are freely available. But just to have a, a proper workplace assessment after you've had a dyslexia assessment and for the assessor to go into the workplace with you and look at your workplace and make suggestions to your employer. I could give you a couple of examples of people I've worked with. I was helping a young woman who she'd been on maternity leave and they were trying to get rid of her. Um, You know, they wanted to get rid of her because she wanted to try and work at home some of the time and uh, she was very dyslexic. She she had the assessment done. And when I went out to see her at work, she was working for a gigantic company where they all hot-desked, so she was never on the same computer. Um, there was a gigantic screen in front of the, the hot desks which played Parliament, not with the sound but with the, vis- the visual display of Parliament on that screen all day when, it was, when Parliament was running. Um, you had to book a room to work independently. You had to like go and book a, a room if you wanted to work on your own. And I just, when I looked at this, I just couldn't think of anything worse mm. for anyone who was dyslexic to work in. If you if you tried, you couldn't have conjured up a worse picture. So I wrote a report and said that they would be well advised to let her work at home a couple of days a week because she would have the ability to think without all these screens and not knowing what computer she was logged into and where she was, um, and to make the booking of these private rooms more accessible and less discriminatory. Like she said that people said you were hopeless if you had to go and book one of those rooms and you couldn't work on the floor. Uh, so it's a matter of someone assessing the situation. And another woman that I had at university who went to work for the BBC, she was fantastically proactive. And when she'd been at university at London Met, she told all the lecturers she was dyslexic. She had people read her papers to her. She had uh, an amanuensis who wrote the answers for her. And 
she got an award of merit from the university at her graduation and I went. It was, yeah. it was wonderful to see that. Yeah. And then when she got the job in the BBC, she was again on an open floor and she had an accountancy degree. And so she set up with the person who was helping her uh, ways of coping. So she had a little hat on her computer, which when she had it in a certain place on the computer... It said, "Do not disturb, like, do not disturb me. Don't mm-hmm. interrupt me." So she could concentrate. And then, when she wanted to speak to people, she would take the hat off this corner of the computer, and people knew they could come up and talk to her without disturbing a train of thought. And so she had, you know, lots of things in place, but she was very proactive and always told people and always had a foot in the door. And that's how she she survived. I guess that's one of the problems in Australia because there's no support at the moment for people in the workplace. It's really hard to disclose because if you do disclose, I've found that people actually, um, they don't know, they say, well, what do you you need? They They don't know what you need. They don't understand what it means. And so unless you're really proactive, like that girl, um, it's really hard because there's no one to tell them what you need. And so it's real catch-22, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't disclose in Australia because there isn't that support, which uh, we're hoping to change um, in the future. But, um, yeah, there's some really good examples of why it's so important to be able to have assessors come in and support people. Absolutely. And the other thing is in the UK, there's, in, there's a law that, that encourages people to employ people who are disabled. Now, I don't know whether that you've got that here, but so many percent of um, people should should be disabled in a workplace. So uh, you'll often see um, people, for example, in wheelchairs or, or whatever, uh, working. And therefore, a lot of people, because uh, dyslexia is regarded as a disability in the UK, and is under the Disability Act, they're, they're quite happy to take uh, people in who, would, who are dyslexic because that also makes up their quota uh, of people who are disabled in big organisations. Yeah. And they can, they can say that to the government, mm. you know, when they're audited. And uh, so those sort of things help. And, of course, um, some, you know, people who've got uh, disabilities make very good employees mm. for a variety of reasons, because they have understanding and sympathy and empathy for other people who have them as well. So... That, to me, it's only positive to employ people and to put the strategies in and the reasonable adjustments uh, so they can function at their peak. That's right, because I think for people with dyslexia, the reasonable adjustments are not expensive and they're really simple things like you know letting a person have their own desk or exactly. letting them download the software to put on their computer. So they're not expensive and the, the outcomes are huge for the organisation. Yeah. 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 And the other thing is that they have strengths that other people don't have. Like they have uh, often very good long-term memories and they're lateral thinkers. Mm. And those sorts of skills are very useful in organisations so that when you're in a meeting, um, often someone who's dyslexic can come at something from a different uh, point of view and they are often extremely helpful in problem-solving. Over the next uh, five years, I mean, the UK is doing really well, um, but what do you think could change both in Australia and the UK, because you share your time across both countries, um, that could improve outcomes for people with dyslexia? 
Well, I wouldn't want you to think that it's all roses in the UK because, <laughs> unfortunately, the, the Conservative government is cutting funding, which um, they do. Uh, so it, it isn't that easy, but it's certainly um, better than, than Australia from what I can perceive. Uh, of course, what I'd like to see happen here is that people could be assessed easily, that they could have support, that they would get support in the universities and in the in the colleges, in the schools and in the workplace, and that being dyslexic was not a sort of burden, that it was just something that made you different and that you could be supported in achieving the best you can do in your area. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah. And are there um, any top tips that you could give for students in the um, at uni or TAFE and in the workplace? I mean, I know you've written a book, so it might be hard to narrow down what the top tips might be. Um, well, I, I think that there, there are a few things. I think the most important thing is to never, ever give up, ever. Um, I also think that if you think you're in the wrong course, and I've advised people about this, don't be afraid to change. Uh, I remember tutoring a boy that just so upset me, uh, a, one boy at university who came to me who'd been doing the same course at another university and his parents had very high expectations about him and he'd failed and he'd come in and I was tutoring him. I was his dyslexia tutor. And I said to him after about a month, I said, look, you're on the wrong course. I said, you know that and I know that. And I said, you... All you can really do is change your course. And this great look of relief came over his face. I think it's really important to know that it's not failure to make a change, to to realise that the first uh, decision you, you made is not necessarily the best, and to change courses. And I have done that in my life. And I think that the other thing is that you really need to know how you think and learn. And if you can have that metacognition of how you think and learn, it makes such a difference to your life. Like if I'd known I was an auditory learner long ago, which I know now, I wouldn't have tried twice or three times to do a correspondence course mm. and just hated it. Uh, you know, when all these notes came through the, the post and I had to sit there, and this was before computers, and... I know things are much better now because there are there are podcasts for courses that are on distance learning and there are chat rooms. But I need to go into a class and listen to what someone has to say and listen to the other students and hear their opinions, and that's how I learn. Mm. And so they would be my top tips. That you, You're not a failure if you change. You're just saying that's not, for me, this is a better choice. Well, thank you so much, Sandra, for coming on the show today and for sharing your story. And I think it's you know, really important for people to hear what's happening in the UK and how we can um, bring that across to Australia um, to support students in higher education and, and in the workplace. Thanks very much, Shay. And look, all the very best. And I'm you know, only too happy to try and help uh, with whatever I can do to move things forward and get a better lot for dyslexic people in Australia. Thank you so much. And for those that want to find out more about Sandra's story, you can go on to the Dear Dyslexic website. You can also find information on her book there and um, her blog will be out soon. So thank you for listening. Until then, bye for now. Bye.
Oh!